0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 29, The Pound Stops Here. Between the early 1930s and early 1940s, only 12 counterfeit British banknotes were discovered in Europe and sent to Threadneedle Street in London. But then, as Operation Andreas was getting off the ground, before it crash-landed, a few dozen made an appearance. But these, although very good forgeries, were given away by the inferior paper the quality work was printed on. Then, in September of 1942, better forgeries started popping up in Tangiers, which were rushed to London. Not until the notes were placed under a quartz lamp that an associate was sent out to purchase could the men experts in British banknotes absolutely confirm that something was off. It took more looking, more like examining the notes under a microscope, literally, to find several of the security features missing. And that cinched it. This level of forgery called for action. So, a report was written up. After all, until that moment, the men that answered to the Bank of London's chief cashier had believed, beyond doubt, that there would never be quality forgeries of their banknotes. Still, here was the exception staring them in the face. In one of the margins of the report they wrote, someone added, quote, The most dangerous ever seen. Unquote. And as the year 1943 opened up, so too did the floodgate of more top quality forgeries. Reports like the one before became regular items. Indeed, it got to the point where all the last reporter had to do was change the date and then double or triple the quantity that was issued on the last report. Something had to be done. So, quietly, the Bank of London stopped issuing all notes over five pounds. When this was found out, after word got out, the Bank of London's official reason was they were getting British currency ready for the post-war world. But in reality, it was a measure to help it make it easier to tell if a note was fake or not. The other part of the official statement, but only given to members of parliament, was that the counterfeit notes, so far discovered, were not affecting the strength of the pound. The pound was, if you'll forgive me, sound as a pound. But even then, that was not true. By late 1943, the pound started dropping in value, though the fortunes of the Allies were rising across Europe. So... Who was spreading the fake banknotes around Europe, and what was the money being used for? Major Kruger's boss, Schellenberg, had selected a dubious character named Friedrich Paul Schwinn to organize a band of swindlers, a network that would exchange the worthless paper for material goods. Schwinn should have been more myth than man, as his rise to prominence is a masculine fairy tale story. He was born humble near the Black Forest in Swabia, but possessed natural intelligence, worked hard, swindled even harder, and then took the shortest path to rising through the ranks. He married into the local aristocracy. His climb into even higher society was accomplished by brilliantly managing his wife's fortune. Schwind had a knack for all things financial. And some of his pre-war years were spent in Hollywood, California, rubbing elbows with high-ranking Nazi foreign service agents and Hollywood stars. Before the war, Schwinn's first wife died, but he quickly remarried another rich lady and continued on with his life of parties and horse races. His time with Nazi agents in California led to working with the Abwehr, which led to Schellenberg. By October of 1943, Schwinn was officially in charge of distributing the fake currency, and his organization, in every last detail which stretched all across Europe, was stored only in his head. There were no records to find in any cellars of his numerous homes, nor even in his castle in Italy. From this memory palace, or rather, memory Federal Reserve, Schwinn, in short, had his agents take the phony money and buy raw materials for the German war effort, but also precious metals, always universal currency, especially in a time of war. Schwen also supported himself by supporting the black market. Foodstuffs and weaponry were purchased and shipped to Germany, and he took a cut from every transaction. In all, Schwen had about 50 agents who possibly had their own minions, that helped spread the money around. And as a man connected to the SS, Schwinn was breveted a commando staff major in the Wehrmacht's panzers, although his underlings were given no such honors. And using that honor and the uniform that came with it, Schwinn intimidated his way into taking an 11th century castle near Moreno, Italy, to store his earthly possessions. Ironically, Schwen used mostly Jews as his agents, as they, understandably, were less likely to be seen as Nazi agents, though it's doubtful they knew who they were really working for at first. Even more ironically, many of Schwen's agents started using their prosperity, freedom of movement, and influence to help local Jews, as the war seemed to be going the way of the Allies. The fact that they were purchasing freedom directly or indirectly with Nazi profits, mattered little to the victims. One Schwen agent in particular, George Spitz, through intermediaries, used the Bernhard notes to buy artwork for and from Hermann Goering himself. Paradoxically, Spitz's agents were themselves swindled as their fake currency was used to buy counterfeit Dutch artwork, mostly paintings. One bad turn does indeed deserve another. As for Goering, he figured out early on that all this artwork might be useful if things did not go Germany's way, or if he outlived his Führer. Besides which, these items were needed to decorate his enormous Hall, named after his dead first wife. Schwen, the ringleader, even cashed in on the fall of Italy. As the Allies took control of southern Italy in 1943, Schwen had his agents use the fake British notes to buy real Allied-backed lira, and then spread that money around northern Italy, where it was worth more. Because the Germans might have been in control, but everyone knew the Allies were coming. Schwen basically robbed Italy, his own German masters, and the Allies. But talent, like greed, knows no lines on a map. As for Schwen's boss, Schellenberg, he, the ever-loyal SS man, used most of the money Kruger brought him every Saturday to buy arms for the SS troops, mostly those stationed in the Balkans. The German army did not trust the SS, so did their best to avoid giving them any heavy weapons. Long gone were the days of loftier goals, like destroying Britain's economy. By the time the Bernhard notes were ready... In any real numbers, survival was the number one rule. Despite the overall plan, the Category A notes were not given to German spies. That, to Schellenberg's thinking, only increased their chances of getting caught. But that money was used to pay the already established double agents and foreign spies. But this did little good, as Britain managed to kill or turn every agent they captured on their home island, which meant, of course, that parts of London knew of the fake notes. But again, those men within the bank weren't talking to anyone, or listening to anyone, about counterfeit British banknotes. They would not heed advice, hoping the problem would go away. And now, it's time to set the record straight for at least one of the many lingering falsehoods of World War II. The Bernhard notes did not as previously advertised by some, helped the Germans find Mussolini so Hitler could send in his most trusted commando, Scorzeni, to rescue Il Duce after Marshal Bagdolio surrendered Rome to the Allies on September 8, 1943. The truth goes something like this. Although a part of Bagdolio's agreement was to give up Mussolini to the Allies, he, after making his deal, skipped town. Mussolini, disgusted with everyone and everything to do with the war, retired to a ski lodge in Gran Sasso, about 75 miles north of Rome. The access routes to Mussolini's winter wonderland were controlled by the Germans. The loyalty of the Italian guards around Il Duce were unknown, at least by the former dictator. As stated, Mussolini was done with the war and with Hitler. Just days before, the fallen fascist tried to start a dialogue between the USSR and Nazi Germany that would lead to peace, so that the mighty German armed forces could focus on saving Italy. This, of course, went nowhere fast. So, there sat Mussolini in a grand state of indignation, waiting for events to run their course. But his senior partner, Hitler, wasn't done with him yet. Hitler had the rescue of Mussolini all planned out, and as many of us know, the German commandos landed on the rooftop, forced their way in, and brought the thankful and revenge-driven Mussolini out by a small plane. However, the truth is that Mussolini didn't want to go. He wanted no further truck with a man in Berlin, but obviously didn't have a choice. As he was loaded onto the plane, the lead commando, Skorzeny, Calmly shared a flask with the Italian officer in charge. So much for the daring rescue that would allow Mussolini to lead the new Italian Social Republic, but was just really just the northern half of Italy under German command. And so much for the Bernhard banknotes being used to sniff out the location of Mussolini by German spies. But the Bernhard notes did have their day when it came to the spy adventures of Elisa Basna, otherwise known to the Germans as the spy Cicero. Basna was working as a valet to the British ambassador in Ankara, Turkey, one Sir Hugh Catchbull Hugesson. Catchbull Hugesson, or Snatch, as he was known to his school chums, had the job of, in descending order, to get Turkey to fight with the Allies. Not going to happen. Peel Turkey away from Germany all but impossible, but maybe, at least, to get refueling rights for Allied bombers at Turkish bases who were trying to bomb Germany's Balkan oil fields. Whereas all Banza had to do was to look after himself while he was looking after Snatch. The German ambassador, the one, the only, Franz von Papen's single task was to stop Snatch in whatever he was doing. Anyway, Basna who was 39, considered himself as having no future, so decided to cash in, as it were, on his current employment and current employer. So, in the late summer of 1943, Basna took the British ambassador's keys, made wax impressions of them, had his own copies made, and then opened the ambassador's safe when Snatch was in the tub, and he took pictures of all the documents therein. As Basna was 39 and the clock was ticking on his life, he decided to contact the Germans directly with his proposal. Von Papen, not thinking too much of Basna, and presumably his offer, passed him over, right over the Abwehr, to an agent of Schellenberg's. Basna gave the Germans a taste of what he had, and after examining the shocking documents, Von Papen himself codenamed Basna Cicero. Cicero's down payment was made with real money, but all subsequent payments, as other pictures were handed over, about 280,000 pounds worth, were made with banknotes from Block 19. In the end, the documents didn't do much for the Germans, except perhaps show how lackadaisical Snatch was. Also, the code name Overlord was in one of those documents, but not the where and when of the Allied landings. Ironically, the documents also showed that Snatch wasn't getting anywhere with the Turks, which meant the German troops in Turkey could have been sent to the French coast. They were eventually, but could have been, according to the copied British documents, sent much sooner. Cicero remained a spy for about three months before Alan Dulles, an American spy, called on to him and informed the British. As it became clear that the Allied forces at Normandy were not going to be pushed back into the sea, the men of Block 19 worried over their situation. Was the end of the war coming? What would Kruger do, or be ordered to do? Would Operation Bernhard be shut down and all evidence, including themselves, destroyed? Such seemed the case when all work was halted for two days, just weeks after the D-Day landings. Kruger created busy work for the men, but anxiety hung thick in the air. Then, mercifully, production was ordered to start again, but with a twist. According to Kruger, Berlin now wanted millions of pound notes instead of the usual thousands. The men, elated, jumped to it. After all, dead men make no money. But then, right after the work started again, an even larger twist was thrown at them. Kruger now wanted, besides increased production of British notes, U.S. currency to be counterfeited. So, a section of Block 18 was cleared out for the purpose, and a select few were assigned to the dollar group, as they were to be called. But here, the men saw another chance to stretch out their lives. If Berlin wanted counterfeit U.S. dollars, then they needed these men. So, as the process was put together, Those selected purposefully sabotaged the works, but then found out they didn't have to. The U.S. note was a completely different animal than the black-and-white British banknote. The three men selected to work out the process were a Dutchman named Abraham Jacobson, a photographer named Norbert Levy from Berlin, and Adolf Berger, who had to be watched as he knew his wife had already been killed at Auschwitz. So had nothing to lose. But as the men buckled down, they ran into problem after problem. First, as it was decided that only the U.S. $100 bill had to be copied, they would have to deal with the more detailed face of Benjamin Franklin. Then there was the green-colored backside of the note, hence its nickname. Finally, the paper the Americans used contained minute pieces of silk throughout the bills to give them strength. But once the sabotaging was over, the men were still unable to produce a convincing copy. Kruger saw this and offered up a solution himself, in the form of one Russian master counterfeiter by the name of Solomon Smolyanov. Kruger had saved Smolyanov just in time, as he was wanted by many, because he had cheated many. As the newest addition to Block 19 entered the barracks, he introduced himself with the following quote: "I have come from that famous health resort, Mothhausen, summoned by a special messenger to work here. By profession, I am a counterfeiter and am recognized even by my enemies as a master in the field." Unquote. And so the dollar group had their latest addition. In short, Smolyanov was to perfect the negatives the dollar group would use to print the $100 bills, which he told Kruger he could do. So then Smolyanov, reading the writing on the wall, fell into step with the delaying tactics used by the others. The latest plan was to criticize each other's work to the Germans, who would not know who to blame and therefore shoot. But the new guard over the men was Hauptscharfuhrer Kurt Werner, the straight-laced man Kruger tried to get at the start of the operation. He let the men bicker for a few weeks, but when he saw nothing was getting done, verbally bashed the men's head together and ordered them to work it out. The men of Block 19 and 18 soon missed Marok and Weber. The Dollar Group then reverted to stalling tactic Plan C, and started asking for obscure or irrelevant items to help in their work. Not that the Germans knew this. More weeks went by with no counterfeit dollars to show for it. Then the prisoners found out they may have been pushing their scenario too far. When Kruger called Werner from Berlin and was told there had been little or no progress, the SS Major exploded and yelled he was coming to the camp himself just as soon as he could. Werner, now concerned with his own hide, forced the dollar group to do the best they could with what they had. Mach schnell. So, when Kruger arrived, sans his normal carrots, Werner was able to pacify the enraged man with a sterling copy of the backside of a U.S. $100 bill. Laying it next to the real thing, Kruger nor Werner could tell which one was locally made. Much pleased, the Major left in a jolly mood, taking the one-sided counterfeit bill with him to show Himmler that he, Kruger, was not wasting anyone's time. But as for the prisoners, their reward for this were orders to work non-stop until the plates for the front side were equally perfect. The dollar group figured out very quickly that they were doing nothing more than printing out someone's getaway money. But what choice did they have? The guards, with Werner leading the way, checked on the men's work every single hour. After a week of working, almost with no sleep, Smolyanov and the Dollar Group were able to show the frenzied Werner that their work was almost done. Upon hearing this, Werner picked up the phone and informed Kruger. Kruger then told Himmler. Then a message went in the opposite direction that ended with the prisoners being ordered to print One million dollars a day. Before the prisoners can figure out a way to tell their captors of the impossibility of this task, they heard from Werner that orders from Berlin had arrived to liquidate the whole camp. By now, it was February 1945, and everyone knew the Americans were coming, and that Auschwitz had already been captured by the Russians. These men had come so far, survived so long, only to be erased at the last moment. Kruger was not coming back. Days went by, and then one morning, the tires of a vehicle could be heard rolling over gravel. Was that a detachment of soldiers who were to line up the prisoners and shoot them, then burn their bodies beyond recognition? The prisoners rushed to the window and saw, to their amazement, Major Kruger, stepping out of his black Mercedes. As one, they started breathing again. After calming them down, which took some time, Kruger explained that, yes, the order had been to shut everything down and to do away with all property connected, but that he, Kruger, had convinced his superiors that the work they, the prisoners, were doing was much too important in that the money could help those Germans that survived the war. It was decided to move the camp to a safer, all things being relative, location. The captives celebrated by eating the rest of their Red Cross packages and joked about not being able to remember eating so much. After all, any place that was more secure had to be better equipped, which meant better food preparation facilities. But then began the back-breaking process of packing up their materials, machines, the money, wrapped in waterproof packages, and finally, these still-unfinished dollar bill plates, whose importance was currently keeping them alive. Thus, with their material loaded up onto a train, and they themselves into attached cars, the men began a journey that lasted much longer than it was supposed to. Not sure whether to feel elation or hopelessness over their peculiar situation, Wherever the train went, the caged men saw nothing but destruction. Dresden, when they had reached it, had just gone through its own long night of Allied firebombing. The smell of everything burnt still hung in the air, and the train moved on. When the men went through Prague, it was more of the same. Steel wreckage and charred buildings. Then the train turned south, and it was then that some of the prisoners realized they were heading for... Malthusen, in northern Austria. When their 600-mile trek was over, the men were ordered to climb down, their clothes taken, replaced by standard prison uniforms, their Hollerith ID cards reissued with a Malthusen number. Any privileges they had as Kruger's men vanished. The disbelieving prisoners were led to Block 20 and saw fresh blood splattered on the back wall. Sergeant Werner, who had made the trip with them, explained that some Russian prisoners had recently tried to escape and were shot out of hand. The counterfeiters slept fitfully that night. The next day, they were ordered to unload all of their machinery, which they did without a word, and then waited. Waited for Kruger, waited for the Americans, waited to be shot, just like the Russians. The men stayed in Block 20, with the blood still on the walls, for just over four weeks. Then they were told to reload their equipment, that they were being moved to begin again their work. The lifting was much harder this time, as the men were barely given anything to eat or drink during their time locked up. Once on board, they were taken, about 60 miles south of Motthausen, to a place that did not exist. It was called... Red L. Zipf, and was one of Mount Housen's subcamps. As the work there involved the production of Hitler's V 2 rockets that were currently raining down on London, the location's name nor its nickname, Schlier, were hardly ever spoken. The idea was to start a production as soon as they could upon their arrival, but the two barracks the men were given did not have enough room for them or their equipment. But for all the urgency, this halted production didn't seem to bother the efficiency-obsessed Werner. This made the prisoners nervous. The machinery stayed where it was, but the men were moved into Tunnel 16 and stayed there until late April. Werner fed them occasionally. Then rumors circulated that the Americans would be arriving soon. Verner told the men that orders had reached him to liquidate all connected to Operation Bernhard. Then he ordered them to burn all banknotes, except those from Category A. This still took about four days, with Werner making sure no one lollygagged. It was clear that not even a scrap of their work was to survive. They thought this had to be it. Then suddenly, as the last of the banknotes went up in flames, Major Kruger appeared, again in his black Mercedes. He looked drawn and tired to the men, but they were certainly glad to see him. Kruger was kind and respectful, as ever. He complimented them on the quality of their work, but that some things were not meant to be. As he was leaving, he told them that he arranged for their safety until the Americans arrived. His last words to them were, Trust me, gentlemen, auf Wiedersehen, Kruger then climbed into the back of his car. The men never saw him again. But Werner, whether acting on Kruger's orders or not, wasn't finished with the men from Blocks 19 and 18. Again, the men were forced to load up their equipment, the task this time almost impossible due to their weakness from a lack of food. Unbeknownst to the men, all those crates were taken to lakes south of their location, near Ebensee, and dumped. Or rather, most of the crates. Some of the German drivers, deciding to think of their future and not Nazi Germany's end, took a turn in the road to a new life, but ended up in the hands of advancing American troops. Chaos began to reign all around. Other camp guards started confiscating trucks to make good their getaway. This left Werner with one, maybe two trucks, to move his prisoners' to Ebensy as well, per his latest orders. With as much violence as he could muster, Werner, frustrated, could only fit fifty six men into his remaining vehicles, and his orders were very clear. The counterfeiters were all to be killed together, at the same time, but only when they reached Ebensy, to make sure no one survived to tell the tale. But there was nothing for it. Verner decided to take the men he had aboard lock them up, and then return for the rest. With a driver at his side and his pistol trained on the men in back, Werner urged the driver to rush along the road while leaning on the horn to scatter the swarming refugees, the once proud soldiers of Nazi Germany. Upon arrival, the first batch was unceremoniously dumped at Ebensee and locked into the wooden SS bathhouse. The doors changed shut, guards... Posted at the door. With typical SS cruelty, the prisoners left behind were ordered to stand there, outside, waiting for the return of Vernish truck. Of course, their spirits were lifted as they stood at attention because their eyes took in the flag at half mass. This was out of respect for the death of Adolf Hitler, as word had reached the camp the day before. The truck returned to the still standing men at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, May 1st. But everyone within the camp could hear the truck's engine struggling to fulfill its duty, which meant that Werner could only take all minus about two dozen of the men on this trip. Again, refugees filled the road, but Werner made it to Evensee with his second group. As he returned for the last few, the truck, like Hitler did days before, died in service to the Nazi state. But Werner, still determined to fulfill his orders, had no choice but to order the remaining prisoners to begin the walk south. As the men started out late in the day, Werner behind them, pistol still in hand, the other SS guards off to each side. One of the prisoners in front, Jacobson, did a fast count and came up with 20 of his comrades. There were a few more, but they were Spaniards, enemies of Franco. As the miles slowly passed them by, one by one, the SS guards slipped away, abandoning their superior. And when darkness came, a few of the prisoners, the Spaniards, silently turned into the woods and were seen no more. Back at the SS bathhouse, the majority of prisoner counterfeiters waited for their comrades to join them, not knowing that the absence of the last twenty and Werner's obsession to fulfill his orders properly were the only things keeping them all alive. Their journey took four days, but somewhere during the last few miles, before their prisoners reached Ebensee, Werner himself disappeared into the dark. The men looked around, but were alone. Strangely, as they had nowhere to go and nothing to eat, they continued on to the camp which itself had undergone a strange transformation. The camp gate was open. The camp itself was mostly abandoned, except for the few diehard SS. Those guards soon found themselves negotiating a peace with representatives of the Red Cross. The compromise was that the gate was left open, but none of the prisoners were allowed to leave, which meant that when the last of the counterfeiters arrived, they had to talk their way into the camp. Werner may have disappeared, but was positive he was going to have the last laugh. He knew that, as Ebensee's sadistic commander, Anton Gans, left a few days earlier, he had ordered his men to kill everyone once he was gone. He was well and truly gone now, but there were so few guards and so many prisoners. For the remaining guards to open up on them would guarantee that many died, but not all, at least not all of them, before they threw themselves on their tormentors. It was a stalemate, which the prisoners may not have known, but suspected. Before too long, the last of the guards melted into the woods after changing into civilian clothes. The prisoners were now in charge of the camp. Within hours of the last SS guards leaving, Sherman tanks from the U.S. 80th Division "'rolled into the open gate. "'The top hatch opened, "'and an American with an atrocious New Jersey accent "'began a conversation with Max Grohn, "'one of the counterfeiters. "'Grohn, who always looked for an advantage, "'just one of the reasons he was still alive, "'asked the young man for a cigarette. "'The American offered up his whole pack, "'but when Grohn saw that they were third-class rations, "'he briskly refused the offer.' The New Jerseyans sympathized. That's all I got. We're moving so goddamn fast that supply can't keep up with us. After the tanks left, ever moving east, Groan was at least appreciative of their speed. To the best of their ability, the men touched by Operation Bernhard tried to get on with their lives as best they could once the war was over. Max Grone found that he had an intense fear of taking orders and so sought whatever work he could, but only as a freelancer, with the ability to leave at any time. Friedrich Schwen, the man in charge of distributing the millions worth of fake British banknotes, was arrested by the U.S. military government in June 1945. In order to not be shot outright, Schwen took U.S. military personnel around to numerous locations where he and others had buried valuables. Most real, but some being stacks of Bernhard notes. His best day, and for the U.S. as well, was when Schwinn took them to almost 8,000 French and Italian very real gold coins that weighed around 100 pounds. They were valued at $200,000. He later took them to his castle in Italy, where many stolen works of art had somehow appeared and were being stored. Bernhard Kruger ran for as long as he could, but then turned himself in to the British authorities in November of 1946. The British literally were too embarrassed to admit to what he did to their currency, and ended up turning him over to the French. The French, spotting talent when they saw it, supposedly offered him a job in their secret service. He said no and was released in November of 1948. In time, Kruger would find himself working at the Hanimula paper factory, the very place that supplied him with his quality paper for his false banknotes. SS Major Kruger may have been let off easily by the Allies, but we will not be so kind. Before he died in 1989, a marine explorer, Hans Frick, took Kruger down into the Toplitsi Lake within a miniature submarine. Down in the depths, Frick and Kruger saw stacks of his counterfeit notes, still wrapped in watertight bags. Shocked beyond all reason, Frick heard Kruger mutter, Alles für Führ, Volk und Vaterland. Quote, everything for the Führer, the people, and the fatherland. Then he sobbed, I did everything I could, and after the war, they treated me like a scoundrel.